I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Patience Adamu. And I'm Curtis Vermont. And this is The Drip a podcast about political decision-making during a racial revolution. Stay tuned every single week as we analyze Canadian news and Black issues. And if you like what you hear, you know you've got to subscribe. On this week's episode, we are joined by Deputy Mayor Steve Anderson as we discuss some of the top headlines from the week of February 14th, including... The Feds finally repealing minimum sentences that disproportionately hurt Black and Indigenous people. The Toronto vacancy tax already working despite not being implemented yet. Pandemic benefits being extended until June. Hashtag hair love is here for the Black History Month win. Khalil Seavright receives an injunction to stop building tiny homes. That Texas winter storm proof that climate change is a real thing. And plenty more. Hmm. So, Steve, you ready to discuss Canadian news and black issues? Let's do it. Awesome. So we'll start by talking about some positive news coming from the federal government. On Thursday, Justice Minister David Lametti introduced a bill to repeal mandatory minimums for some drug offenses, drug offenses that have disproportionately harmed Black and Indigenous people across this country. The legislation would require police and Crown prosecutors to consider other options like addictions treatment for simple possessions rather than charging them, and gives the courts leeway to use more house arrests for people who aren't a threat to public safety. By passing the bill, the Trudeau government would repeal or would be repealing 14 out of 67 mandatory minimum penalties on the books that were put in place under Stephen Harper's conservatives, including penalties for all drug offenses in the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, some offenses involving guns and one tobacco-related offense. For those who worry this is a watering down of justice for serious crimes, fear not! Mandatory minimums will still apply to serious crimes like murder, child sexual abuse, and gun trafficking. And these charges should be welcomed by everyone who isn't racist, since data provided by the Fed shows the percentage of Indigenous people in jail for offenses with mandatory minimums have almost doubled in over 10 years, and that 39% of all Black people and 20% of all Indigenous people in federal prisons were admitted for an offense that included minimum sentencing. So this truly could go a long way in keeping many of our brothers and sisters out of our criminal justice system to begin with. In a statement, Minister Lametti said, quote, serious criminals deserve serious punishment, but too many low risk and first time offenders, including a disproportionate number of indigenous peoples and black Canadians are being sent to prison too long because of policies that aren't proven to deter crime or keep our communities safe, end quote. And I hear that. Well, we know that our, our hard-on-crime folks are going to have something to say. So what's, what's the opposition saying about this? Basically, they're, they're mixed. They're positive mixed. Aaron O'Toole seems to agree with the plan since at a news conference last month, he said, quote, we must provide assistance to Canadians who have drug addiction and health problems, end quote. 
But in my opinion, we should wait to see what happens in committee. Uh, the conservatives tend to become more hardline when people aren't looking. And remember, this is the repealing of some of their signature legislation. Plus, they could play nice in the House, mm-hmm. but cause hell in the Senate, which they've done before. Jagmeet Singh said, quote, while there are positive steps in this bill, it's very disappointing not to right a historic wrong by failing to uh, include expungements and by failing to uh, decriminalize drugs. The liberals could have erased criminal records for simple weed, but they didn't. I hear that. For the record, when asked why he wasn't repealing simple possession, Lametti said it's still an option, but he's focusing on the sentencing element within the justice system. So we have these facts in front of us. I mean, what are our thoughts on this development? Yeah, I mean, sure. I, I think, uh, you know, what we're talking about, I believe, is uh, Bill C-22 uh, right. uh, that the government uh, is uh, bringing forward. And I think you raised a, a good point, Curtis, off, off the top, which is this is not a situation where our most dangerous criminals are going to be getting a pass, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think uh, a lot of people need to understand that this is really targeting individuals who are low risk to our, our community and providing diversionary programs where they can be reintegrated at some point back into the community because of the fact that they're a low risk. And I believe the Minister of Family, Ahmad uh, Hussein, actually spoke about that uh, as well in a press conference, uh, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. But let's not lose sight of this, right? Uh, Patience, you talked about this, the, the those who are the tough on crime. This this really started with the conservatives, right? When they imposed these mandatory minimums, removing the discretion from the courts to look at factors in sentencing that may impact um, and usually do, as Chris pointed out, uh, Black and Indigenous groups. And if we're really truthful, this largely came from that shooting with Jane Kriba. As unfortunate as it was, that Eaton Center shooting, this is where the conservative government, I believe, decided that they were going to throw the book and we know who they were throwing it and what direction they were throwing it in. So I'm happy to see that they are taking steps to address these systemic issues that face these two groups that we speak of. Um, Some may argue, why is it just coming now? But at the end of the day, I'm glad to see that there's momentum. I couldn't agree more. I think this, uh, hopefully this will help with some of the over-policing uh, that we've been seeing in, in certain communities. And I do think that to, to your point, Curtis, if O'Toole is being really nice about this, I think they might have something up their sleeve when this goes to committee. So it, it might look like, like we're making this huge change, but there may be some uh, other stuff kind of built into the actual regulations once they come out. Yeah, I, I fundamentally hope that um, the government doesn't rely too much on the conservatives to get the, the bill passed, because, of course, we are in a minority situation and the government will need support of at least one other party. In terms of my thoughts, um, I basically agree. I mean, I agree, I agree with both of you, obviously. Um, uh, but I also agree with the Canadian Association of Black Lawyers president, uh, Raphael Taki, who's also senior counsel at TD Bank, who says he's, quote, excited about Bill Bill C-22 and that it addresses a lot of the issues detailed in a report that his group and Ryerson's Faculty of Law produced uh, late last year. At the same time, this is just one measure and one part of the dial, right? So the other part includes hiring more diverse talent and making sure that police forces and the corrections community all understand how racial bias works and how to manage it. But as he said, you got to count your wins. 
Jumping to our next story. So Doug Ford continues to say that it would be irresponsible for his government to provide sick leave to workers since there's already a federal program, despite the fact that we know the federal program isn't being taken up by workers out of fear. The claim that he used this week was it would be double dipping into taxpayers' pockets, which, first of all, let's make clear that that makes absolutely no sense. Because if someone applied through one level, say the federal government, then they'd be denied at the provincial one. That's typically how these services work. Exactly. Further, I think we have to have a conversation about why the premier is adopting these positions in the first place. Is this something that is ideologically based, which we know conservatives historically have exhibited for centuries? Of course. This mentality that poor, the poor are undeserving of support? Or is it more of a fiscally economic situation where Doug Ford and his government and their advisors really – are looking at the state of our economy and saying, well, you know what, we, we need people to keep working, even if they're sick, because if they don't, our system will collapse. Do we think there's something else other than those two reasons? Why don't, why don't we have a, a, a small discussion about that? Let's make sense of the situation. Patience, you want to go first? I mean, I already said while you were talking, I think this is totally ideologically based. I read something recently that said that while Doug Ford is is trying to 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 not give people, you know, some additional sick um, paid sick days, he took 19 days while locking down the province. He took 19 days of vacation uh him and 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 you know the the legislature uh to, you know, enjoy his holiday. So mm-hmm. the fact that you don't think that people who are on the front lines of this deserve paid sick days when you had a 19 day paid holiday is it doesn't like make it make sense for me. I think that this is purely ideological. He probably, he and and his, his, his team probably thinks that folks have to quote unquote earn this somehow. Yeah. I I, I don't think this is about costs. I, I I can't, it, it doesn't make sense that people who are sick at this particular time, should go to work. That costs more money. The, mm-hmm. the, the an outbreak at at a workplace costs more money than giving some people sick days. Steve, you want to chime in on that at all? Yeah, sure. I, and, and I agree uh, with what uh, Patience is saying. I think what uh, bothers me about this is, uh, I, I mean, I heard uh, him uh, being Doug Ford yesterday talking about how. Uh, when it comes to uh, reopening and closing, listening to the experts, right? Uh, <laughs> if uh, the local doctors and the local mayors tell me uh, that, you know, we need to move in a certain, certain direction, then that's what we'll do because, and I quote, I have the, uh, the, the uh, Canadians and Ontarians in the sort of forefront of my mind, always. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, well, if that's true, then why aren't you listening to the experts when they keep telling you that you need to be implementing this so that six people are not going to work and spreading this disease? Right. Um, and so I, I just the mixed messaging is what really, I think, confuses a lot of folks. And I think the goodwill that he uh, was able to build up at the beginning of the pandemic, where people started to look at him in a different way to say, you know what, I'm starting to like what this guy is doing. You know, yeah. secretly people were saying, I actually like this guy. Yep. Uh, I think that goodwill is starting to erode away with what I would refer to as foolishness, because yep. you, you can't be saying that kind of stuff and then not backing it up with your actions. That's right. And I, what, what, I, what I despise about it is that from my perspective, he's playing on people's ignorance, right? Because he'll say one thing in public, right? Or, or he'll go on 
city news, whatever it is, and say these rosy things like, you know, the federal government should uh, add more money to the, you know, the support for workers and, and make sure that more people know about it. No, you have a role to play in this too. And he's skirting that responsibility. What annoys me is that if you look at 338 Canada and polling, he's still riding super high. No one is actually paying it, like tying his activity to what he's saying. Let's see if things change over time. Jumping to the Canadian economy, some great things are happening with housing in Toronto. Here at The Drip, we've kept you aware of the vacant home tax that Toronto voted to implement in December 2020, and it turns out it's already having its desired effect before even being implemented. Who would have thought? According to Treb, 40% of investors who were polled said they intended to sell their investment property this year, which is actually 6% more than 2019 and 9% more than 2018. So this is an increasing trend. And if we drill down into the numbers and look specifically at condos, the flight mentality is even stronger, with more than 66% of investors saying they'll be selling this year. One of the objectives of the tax is to curb foreign investment, which still accounts for around $38 billion of our housing supply, despite an Ontario-wide non-resident tax. So this is a very good thing. And yet, we still have Treb playing to people's ignorance, saying they're not opposed to the tax, but they just don't think it will lead to more supply of affordable housing. Treb is also in favor of ensuring that there are exceptions to the tax for Canadians who maintain homes in the U.S., U.S. citizens, commuters like those who live in Windsor but work in Detroit, and other specialized groups, which, of course, sounds fair. Jumping to our next story, the federal government is extending pandemic benefits for an extra 12 weeks, meaning those receiving support won't have to worry about not finding work in a month's time. As said on Facebook by the PM himself, quote, if you need support while you look for a job, we're extending the Canada recovery benefit by 12 weeks. If you have to stay home to take care of a family member, the Canada recovery caregiving benefit is being extended by 12 weeks too. For both of those benefits, the new maximum you can claim is 38 weeks in total, end quote. The Canada recovery sickness benefit is also being extended from two weeks to four weeks, and they're also increasing the number of weeks that regular EI benefits are available for by 24 weeks. That means we can claim up to 50 weeks of support if we need it. Canadian Labour Congress President Hassan Youssef said the extra week should be a major relief for those who are worried about losing support at the end of next month. And I know that's right. But he's also concerned the benefits won't be enough to bridge to a post-COVID Canada and is calling for the benefits to be in place until the end of the year. Which makes sense because if the last few weeks and people losing their resolve to respect distancing guidelines are any indication, we'll keep having lockdowns, which will keep people out of jobs. For example, our country's labor market reversed enough gains in December and January because of lockdowns. We literally lost 858,300 jobs all over again. So what's the feedback on this? Well, um, conservatives are sounding reasonable yet again on this issue for a change, saying they support getting benefits to the employed or the unemployed. They're also saying that Trudeau needs, quote, to present a budget that will get Canadians back to work and bring our economy back to life, end quote as if it's the lack of a budget and not a blood clot pandemic that has the economy shuttered. But okay. <laughs> um, 
The NDP says they like the changes, but still want to see changes made <laughs> that allow Canadians to take one or two sick days at once, which I didn't even know was a problem. It's, I mean, patients have said this before. It's a good thing the NDP is there for things like this, right? Uh, we want to discuss that quickly or move on to blackity black black because we got some real good stuff in there. I mean, what I'll just simply say, I mean, it's it clearly it's a good initiative uh, and it's indicative of the uh, government's commitment um, to take care of Canadians. Uh, and we see that they're willing to spend the money compared to, unfortunately, I think what we see when it comes to um, the, the the Ford government uh, apparently sitting on a pot of gold and, and unwilling to disperse it to actually help uh, Canadians. So moving on to blackity black black this week, we're going to start off with hashtag hair love. So th- this is this is actually a little bit of a tribute to you, um, Steve, because it, it comes from from your area. Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about how regions are failing to honor black folks through their Black History Month celebrations. We saw how, you know, Durham region, you know, fell flat on their face and how Halton region didn't do much better in terms of their police service. But Dufferin County is different. Hmm. With their hashtag hair love campaign, they're building pride and self-love into our young black people. The Center Dufferin District High School Black Chapter developed a video of young Black girls embracing and loving their natural hair and locks. We got a quote here from Gabrielle Spencer, social media head for the Black Chapter, saying, quote, I know that there are girls and boys everywhere, especially in areas like Shelburne, who grow up not liking their hair. It's important to remind people, primarily in their youth, that they aren't alone and that the hair they have is beautiful. This is a particularly important story to tell because I know in my work in the EDI space, we're still getting through how black hair is seen as unprofessional and how tons of black women in particular, but I'm sure men struggle with this as well, you know, can't take um, braids or, or can't take afros to interviews when they're, when they're trying to get into to more professional settings. So this is an ongoing issue. And I think this hair love campaign means so much to our, our, our Black young people and our Black futures as a people. So th- this was a, a really beautiful thing. Steve, what, what do you have to say about Dufferin County and, and the great work that, that was done for Black History Month? Yeah, well, it's, it's just another great initiative that is coming out of Shelburne and Dufferin County. But I mean, th- this, and I hope that the the messaging continues because it's one of obviously self-love and self-acceptance. And two, it's about um, changing the narrative and the perception, as you pointed out, about how the uh, how people perceive black hair um i had a friend that i was in law school with that had long dreads male and he cut them off completely because he was concerned that he may not be able to land a job because the the idea was that maybe they wouldn't look at him as being professional and so i think this kind of conversation is long overdue Uh, i read recently of a woman uh in the states talked about you know straightening her hair because you know she didn't want to have to have the conversation about, you know, why is your hair that texture and having uh, her white colleagues coming in, touching her hair. So uh, it's it's nice to see young people leading the charge on this. Right. Curtis, anything to add for the story? You know, I, I just, I, I, I'm listening to Steve speak and I'm thinking about the, um, 
I'm not sure. I don't remember exactly when this happened. It was a few years ago. There was the case of the young man, the wrestler in the U.S. who was forced to cut his hair. And there was the, the massive backlash for that. And I just, I don't know. I just, I can't help but think of the distress it, it, it causes to have to remove your identity mm-hmm. because of someone's ignorance, because of racism. It just, it, it, it boils my blood every time. Um, and I, I guess I just wanted to say that to say, you know, if you're somebody who's white, or basically, if you're not black listening to this, understand it from that perspective. Understand that this is a question of losing one's identity and no one should go through that, period. Absolutely. So moving on to our next story, I'm sure we all remember the young black man that made a name for himself building tiny shelters for homeless folks to stay warm in the winter. Mm. Well, Khalil Sievright has received an injunction from the city of Toronto to stop building these shelters immediately. Apparently, over the last week, there was a fire that took the life of a man, and this is the cause of the injunction. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. According to city spokesperson Brad Ross, quote, the structures are making it challenging and difficult to encourage people who are living outside to come inside where it is safer, where the issue of fire, for example, is removed. Understandable, of course, Brad, but homeless advocate Lorraine Lamb disagreed, saying it's the city's responsibility to provide options for unhoused people. And what exactly are people supposed to do while the homeless shelters are overcrowded and not taking in folks? So I want to know, just on, on the simplicity of that argument, how we all feel about what is happening right now um, with uh, Toronto's unhoused population. Look, I, I guess what complicates this for me is that we do know that the city of Toronto has been investing heavily in affordable housing in this time of, pa- of the pandemic. Um, so that's the, that's the good part. We, we also don't know, though, if what has been put forth, what has been produced is enough. And so if you're going to say that, well, these, these structures, these shanty towns that, that Khalil have been, has been building to help people, they aren't enough or they're not good enough, they're not safe enough. Well, do you have something better for people currently? That's my only question. Steve, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's a, that's, that's a good point. And, uh, as much as it tugs on your heartstrings, right? Because you see a brother out there trying to help, uh, and it appears that, you know, the big long arm of the city is, is disrupting that. Uh, but I think there's another side that people have to look at it as well is that there are legal implications, right? If these things are being built on, let's say, for example, city property, and there's a fire and unfortunately a number of people are killed, 
then that's a liability that the city has to face. And so to your point, Curtis, you know, do we need to get more stock? Um, does the city need to do a better job? I, I agree with you from what I've been seeing from a distance that they've been he investing heavily. Uh, or do they work with this brother to say, OK, look, if it's if it's not safe, how could we help you to make it safe? Uh, That's right. And so I think these are things that have to be discussed, but uh, it's, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. My thoughts are, are along the same lines as both of you. I, I do feel like had Khalil not started this initiative at the beginning of the winter, um, that that lots of folks would have died of, of pneumonia, of like just frozen to, to death. And I think that what he did, what was a was really um entrepreneurial is, is not really the the right word but it was was very uh, solutions focused and, and i really applaud khalil for this mm -hmm. um but on on the other hand I, I i do see what you're saying uh and brad did mention in his statement that you know this like folks were bringing these these tiny homes to parks and to you know city property and that it was becoming a a, a pretty big issue so i i, I totally I, I get both sides Despite this, Khalil has said that he'll continue to support unhoused folks in Toronto, posting on February 11th that, quote, I'm making this post to let you all know that we have stopped building tiny shelters, but will continue to do maintenance and relocating of shelters as people staying outside get into housing, end quote. Housing is not an overnight thing. Building um, affordable housing and, and creating space in the shelters that we do have is not going to solve the problem overnight. So I think Khalil continuing to do um, what, what he seems really passionate about doing is super, super important. Um, Curtis, I think I'm going to let you take this, this next story because I don't think I could do it just <laughs> Well, thanks for that patience. I, I wanted to join my fellow Jamaicans and lovers of dancehall and hip hop and Afrobeats around the world in celebrating the life of original Don Dada, Eric Beckford, popularly known as Daddy Uroy, who passed away at the age of 78 after a long battle with an illness. He burst onto the scene during the 70s, a period when reggae music and dancehall were frowned upon by uptown society and seen as the music of the uneducated and uncultured. Many of our listeners may not know him due to age or location, but they'll recall his signature phrase, Wait the town to tell the people! You, Roy, will be best remembered for his enough contributions to reggae and dancehall by popularizing the art of toasting or speaking over rhythms in the early days of Jamaican sound system. Owner of Sturgav Sound System, his prowess led to the success of veteran DJs like Supakyat and Johnny Wales. What good, Daddy You, Roy? And rest in power to the real king of the dance hall, although no disrespect to Beanie Man. <laughs> Moving on to news from the world. So this is a big story. The the Texas winter storm of 2021, I think, may go down in history as the largest display of political inefficiency since um, New Orleans, I think. So let, let, me, let, me, let me break it down for you guys. On Sunday, February 14th, South Texas got their worst winter storm in 126 years. Their temperatures remained below zero degrees Celsius for days and at their lowest... We're at 14 degrees Fahrenheit, which is negative 10 degrees Celsius. And on that day, Southern Houston was colder than Alaska. 
Mm, Texas. What's mm. going on? Starting on Monday, so the day after the 14th, the state could no longer provide power to the whole region for a few reasons. One, the requests for power was was way too high. Two, the way that Texans generate power for their grid, which is a separate grid than the rest of the United States, is unique. 25% are renewable energies like wind turbines and things of that nature. The rest of it is fossil fuels. So mm. the burning of coal and things of that nature. These systems are not winterized and thus not equipped to support low temperatures. As a result of not being able to support all Texans, the state started doing rolling power outages to conserve energy. The way that that works, of course, is that uh, a certain region in, in South Texas will get power for a couple of hours, and then another region will get it a few hours later. That way, folks can stay warm, folks can, can boil water, charge their phones, do all that kind of stuff. That's not exactly what happened, though. With no heat inside their homes and with many of these homes having little to no insulation, the issue became more than just about keeping human beings warm, but also a case of keeping people's pipes from bursting from the cold. Mm-hmm. So parts of Texas were without power since Monday. Separately, on Tuesday morning, the city of Houston announced that there was a major water line break and put the city's residents on a water boil advisory, meaning that the water is contaminated before drinking the water. It needs to be brought to a full boil for two minutes before drinking. Many Texans are running on electric systems, not gas systems, making it impossible for them to boil their water because they're, they're living in a power outage. So this is obviously a climate change story, and Curtis and I speak a lot about climate change and how certain governments don't take it as seriously as others. But what is most interesting to me about what is happening is the reaction of the leaders who are most accountable. So let's talk through all three levels of government. Municipal. A Texas mayor, the mayor of Colorado City, um, tweeted uh, you know, which is the, the a great way to, to communicate. There's nothing wrong with tweeting, right? He tweeted, though. <laughs> Quote, let me hurt some feelings while I have a minute. <laughs> <laughs> no one owns you and your family anything, nor is it the, the local government's responsibility to support you during trying times like this. Sink or swim, it's your choice. Just to be clear, Mayor, that is literally your job. <laughs> I don't, I'm sorry. Steve, can you tell me as as a, as a municipal <laughs> as a member of a municipal level of government, can you can you confirm or deny? <laughs> yeah. This is a situation where um a man like that is need drip up. Um, <laughs> um that, that's just a sad that's just the, the, the reality of the situation. But I can't put it any other way for your listeners. A, a person like that just needs to get draped up quick. Um, that, that's not the way uh, your your elected officials uh, should be behaving. This is a, a, an unfortunate example of what happens when you don't plan and you have officials who are incompetent. Um, and, and, and to not winterize your infrastructure uh, in, a, in, a, in a sort of a climate crisis uh, is irresponsible in my view. Come on. Yeah. So he, he keeps going, though. So. He he has now resigned, which I think should should give everyone kind of a lot of relief. But but he kept tweeting, right? And he said he told people without water to quote think outside the box to survive end quote and called people who are waiting in the cold in in their homes, of course, but in the cold homes uh, because they have no power, lazy. 
even as authorities were literally saying the polar opposite to stay at home because they're, they have icy roads, have not been able to clear the roads, much less salt them the way that, that we do. Because again, they don't have the infrastructure to support what is happening to them. So that, that's, that's the municipal level of stupidness. <laughs> then let's move up. Okay. So at the state level, Republican governor Gret Abbott, who was up for re-election in 2022, let's, let's keep that in mind, spoke during a briefing on the Texas energy grid crisis on Thursday afternoon. There, he said that power had been restored to the majority of Texans after a week in which more than 4 million customers were without it at one point or another. And he outlined the actions he is taking to ensure the situation, quote, can never be replicated again. Okay, thank you, Greg Abbott, for recognizing that this can never happen again. What exactly are you going to do about it comes a little bit later. So Abbott said he is asking the Texas legislature to not only investigate what happened, but to mandate the winterization of generators and the power system. He angrily noted that a new chair and vice chair were located to ERCOT. So ERCOT is this, the the board basically that mandate that, that controls their uh, electrical grid. So consider it like a hydro system for Texas. So ERCOT's uh, the, the the chair and the vice chair that were elected to ERCOT's board were from outside of Texas. They were only elected about a week before the storm. So he's saying basically that the problem. Uh, or, or part of the problem is that the chair and the vice chair were from outside of Texas. Not really sure how people elected one or two weeks before the storm could have solved what is a, a long-term infrastructure problem. That's clearly just stonewalling. Clearly just stonewalling. Exactly. He noted that the agency's annual winter assessment, quote, assured the public that there would be enough power to meet peak demand this winter, end quote, and that turned out to be very wrong, uh, Hmm. stating the obvious. Hmm. And then we had another, um, a a former uh, Texas governor, Rick Perry, on Wednesday defiantly proclaim uh, that Texans would spend even longer in the freezing cold if it meant thwarting Democrats who want to address climate change with new regulations. So I'm not sure, was I I clear about what I just said? Because this (laughs) this man is... Out of his mind. So like many other Republicans, Perry literally blamed frozen wind turbines and the fact that wind turbines are, are a component of the green, the, the new Green Deal. He, he blamed the frozen wind turbines for the mass outages and basically said that, that they, which, like I said earlier, would only provide 20% of the energy. They are the, the reason why the system failed rather than the coal not being able to, to be produced or transported to the cities, which everyone knows um, is the, the bigger issue. So, Rick Perry, thank you for making this a totally political issue. Now, this is the big one at the mm-hmm. federal level. Why, everyone asks, why didn't the Fed step in? Why didn't the Fed step in? Curtis, have you heard... Um, of of Ted Cruz's new nickname, Fled Cruz. Fled Cruz. <laughs> Fled Cruz. You know why? Sure do. Fled. Fled. <laughs> Fled. This guy lost power. Saw that the whole that that most of the state was going to lose power, and you know what he did? He cut. <laughs> 
This is the same man who wants to build a wall between the U.S. and Mexico and the first sign of danger and he's flying to Mexico? Bro. Bro. Honestly, I, I, I can't. I, I can't with the man. I can't. Anyway, b- because the senator, who's, who's a federal representative... From Alberta, by the way. <laughs> oh, that's... A, that's <laughs> <shame>. <laughs> Because the man fled the scene, all of the, the decision-making had to be postponed. The good news is that as soon as he landed in Cancun and man took pictures, he came back because he, he knew that this was, this was really, really bad. But it, it just really speaks to the, the level of um, I don't care-ism. I don't know how else to put that <laughs> You know, I'm just going to speak like Ted Cruz for just a moment. Because because this man, this man decided that he was going to leave his fellow Texans and go, go to Mexico that he's been shitting on for years. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and he got caught doing it. And now he's trying to play like he's a, he's a man of the people. Well, he's not, he's a damn liar. And he's had, he's got plenty of caucasity. He's got to get out of there. So uh, I hope he fixes it for himself and for his constituents. I really do. You are really good at that. I, I, <laughs> you offer classes? Like, wow. Anyway, all that to say, all three levels of government failed in this crisis, which is why I think it is worse than, than, than what we saw happen in, in New Orleans. Um, but, you know, the, the, the Democrats are not going to let this slide, eh? Because this is all three levels of Republicans. Mm-hmm. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on Tuesday offered, offered scathing criticism of Texas Governor uh, Greg Abbott, after he blamed winter storm power outages on the Green New Deal and renewable energy sources. But don't play with AOC, fam. She said, quote, I go offline for a few days and return to a GOP governor blaming policies he hasn't even implemented yet <laughs> for his failures. How have you not implemented a thing and then you're going to blame me for the thing that you didn't even implement? Man is speaking to ignorant people. That's why he knows he can get away with saying that. Mm. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Texas runs on 80 to 90% of fossil fuels. These don't work in sub-zero temperatures. And um, the real deadly deal, according to AOC, is his failed leadership. I know we already did some commenting in between, but any, any additional kind of comments on, on what is happening? Or I think, I think it has ended now, officially. I think everyone now has power. But any comments on, on Texas? Uh, I'm waiting until that man resigns. Mm-hmm. All three levels need to resign, though. That's very true. I was speaking in particular about Ted Cruz. Uh, I don't. I. I fled. I, fled. Fled. Let's call him Fled. Just let, let it stick for a while. Sorry, I forgot. Let's talk about Fled Cruz. Like, if he can get out of this, I, I, I don't know what to say about the United States, or I guess I don't know what to say about Texas. Yeah, so I don't know. That's my. That's my thought. Steve, you know the 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 bigger question for me is how did these people get elected? Um, and this is a reason why. People, sensible people who are sitting on the sidelines need to get involved in politics. Uh, this is an embarrassment through and through. And you, you mentioned, uh, patients, that uh, the, the Ted Cruz came back after touching down and taking pictures and, and getting a drink before he went back to the airport. Uh, he did that because you're right. It was splashed all over the media. And then he had the audacity when he came back to say he was just escorting his daughter down to Cancun. He was just doing the fatherly thing, like he was driving down the street to drop a daughter off for a sleepover. 
uh, <laughs> and thought that the people of Texas and people around the world were going to buy that garbage. And so to your point, Curtis, if this guy survives this, then forget about Fled Cruz. He's the Teflon Don. <laughs> 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 oh my god that's perfect jump into questions for the audience two shots of vodka with your slurpee sir so doug ford wants 7-eleven to be able to sell liquor over the counter if liquor licensing is approved, alcohol would be available during limited hours in designated consumption areas of 7-Eleven stores. That's great for convenience, for sure. But that also means a U.S. multinational corporation would be permitted to compete against Ontario restaurants and bars, small businesses that are already struggling due to the pandemic. And we're not even getting into issues of lost tax revenue for the province yet. So the question is, do you support 7-Eleven being given the opportunity to sell beer and liquor. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We're releasing pods on a weekly basis, so subscribe to stay up to date. We now have our own Instagram page dedicated to the podcast. Follow us at The Drip TO. Black people, we hope that you know that this is a safe space for you. So if you have any feedback or questions, feel free to slide in our DMs and let us know what's up. We'd also like to give a special shout out to Stephen Fissett, who graciously provided artwork for this podcast. If you like what you see, you can find him on Instagram at Scarborough Debutante. That's Scarborough, D-E-B-U-T-A-N-T-E for all your graphic design needs. See y'all next time. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.